your help is still needed to fight COVID-19. If you are a clinician able to assist or a hospital in need, the Clinician Matching Network is here to help. By leveraging Chest Analytics, the Clinician Matching Network aligns clinician skills with hospital needs quickly and efficiently. Register today. Learn more at chestnet.org slash clinician matching. So I'm going to go ahead and welcome from everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to Chess COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Casey Cable. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician here at VCU Health, a member of the Chess Social Media Work Group, and I'm very excited to be co-hosting today's webinar. Today we'll be talking with four frontline physicians and their personal experiences with COVID-19. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Steve Simpson. Hi, I'm Steve Simpson. I'm president-elect of CHEST and a professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center. I'm going to be taking your questions here, so please type into the Q&A if you have questions for our panel. Uh, before we get started, I just want to take a minute to say thank you to all of our CHEST members who responded to the call for personnel in New York and other areas via the Clinician Matching Network. I know our members in the city appreciated it, and you've helped all of us demonstrate yet another way that CHEST and its members are important in our profession. Great. Well, thank you so much. So we're honored to have four critical care physicians here today to discuss our to discuss today's topic. So welcome. Um, as Steve noted, uh, we're going to be taking audience questions. So please use the Q and A section to ask those questions. So well, let's get started and meet our panelists. <clears throat> and so first up, I would like to ask if uh, if uh, Harpreet would like to introduce himself. Thank you, Casey. Um, my name is Harpreet. I'm I'm a pulmonary critical care physician uh, who specializes in lung transplantation, um, currently working in the Johnson Barnabas Health System in uh, the state of New Jersey. And I'm looking forward to sharing my frontline experience with you all today. Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Uh, Niha, which, oh, sorry, just Niha. <laughs> Dr. Um, uh, Dengayic, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Absolutely, no, that's a little bit of a tongue twister. So I'm a neurointensivist for the Mount Sinai Health System. I'm the Systems Director for Neuroemergencies Management and Transfers, uh, the Co-Director of the NeuroICU at Mount Sinai Hospital, and the Director of the Critical Care Resilience Program. It's an honor to be part of this panel. Thank you so much. Great, thank you so much. Well, we're glad to have you here. Next, next we're gonna go to uh, Doreen. Could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Dorina Drizzo Harris from NYU Bellevue. Um, I'm a professor of medicine here. Uh, during this epidemic, I've been primarily responsible for staffing of all of our ICUs across our five hospital system, uh, and uh, also uh, been involved with the pulmonary care, inpatient care of uh, COVID patients. Great. Well, thank you so much. Welcome to have you. And last but certainly not least, we have uh, uh, Mangla. Hi, my name is Mangla Narsman. I work at Northwell Health in New York, and uh, I oversee, I'm the Regional Director for Critical Care. I'm also a Professor of Medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine. And during this pandemic, um, I run the VV ECMO program and uh, help staff all the critical care units and had to tie together a series of different units uh, to help deal with this pandemic. That's, that's great, wonderful. Well, welcome everyone. Well, let's start out with some, some questions. 
So all of you work in and around the New York City area. So to start off, so we have something to kind of compare and contrast experiences with. Um, I want you to guys to tell us a little bit about your institution and some of your experience that you had during this pandemic. And I think we'll, ju we'll just start out with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Harpreet for now. Thank you so much, uh, Casey. Um, so I am, as I mentioned, working in the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health System. Currently, I am at the um, only lung transplant center in New Jersey. So there is a, some complexity from a transplant standpoint uh, when we're dealing with COVID. Uh, we, are one of, we are one of the 11 hospitals in the system. Uh, we're next to the international uh, airport as well. So we had uh, an expectation that, uh, you know, as New York would get hit, we would also start to see similar uh, bumps in patient populations dealing with COVID. Uh, and that's a little bit about my system. Um, and then I'm, I'll add more on as we go. Wonderful. Anyone else like to uh, speak up about what their, um, their hospital system is? Sure, I'll share a little bit about uh, the Mount Sinai Health System. So we became a health system in 2013. We have eight hospitals within the health system. It's uh, one of the largest health systems uh, in the country with about 7,000 uh, physicians, 42,000 employees, and 3,800 or so inpatient beds. And for the Mount Sinai Hospital, which is one of the largest hospitals within this health system, we had about 96 ICU beds in the pre-COVID era. We had to increase our ICU capacity pretty rapidly to about 235 beds and uh, think about providing critical care in uh, in spaces that are not conventionally thought of as critical care spaces so uh, it's been it's been quite quite a ride but like like we'll hear during the course of this webinar uh, we're uh, beginning to see see a decrease in the number of admissions now i can say I can say a word about our systems here at NYU that uh, I was primarily uh, involved with, and uh, we have our main hospital at uh, Manhattan, um, which at, at uh, one point uh, had as many as uh, 14 uh, medical ICUs, um, and then our campus in Brooklyn, which also had a, an enormous surge, um, as well as uh, we have uh, the... Um, uh, largest uh, city hospital, Bellevue Hospital, uh, which received many transfers from many of the smaller hospitals across the boroughs. Um, and then our VA worked together with the Brooklyn VA uh, when the Brooklyn VA became overwhelmed with COVID patients. Patients were then uh, sent to our Manhattan VA and the Manhattan VA also took in patients from other local city hospitals. Our system is a system of 12 hospitals uh, that are tied together across New York, uh, Long Island in Manhattan and Westchester County. And through the surge, uh, we took care of over 13,000 COVID positive patients, about 3,000, over 3,000 in their ICUs that were critically ill. And we spent a lot of our time moving patients around as one area in Queens would get hit we moved patients to Westchester or out east to the Hamptons um, to our different hospitals. And that's how we got through this crisis. But that was a huge task in itself. I think we moved 900 patients around in the height of it when we were uh, getting slammed in Queens. So that was one way that we, we pretty much built two hospitals by doing that, just moving patients in and out of uh, places. So uh, lots of lessons learned and lots of experience uh, dealing with very sick COVID patients. 
That's, that is a lot of patience. <laughs> um, banking on that, what, what would you say was, uh, was your, the biggest challenge that you guys faced? I'll start this time, I guess. My biggest challenge was standardizing care. We had uh, neurologists taking care of patients, cardiologists taking care of patients, hospitalists running medical ICUs, pretty much everyone that you can possibly think of. We had a transplant surgeon running one of our ICUs. Uh, so standardizing the care of ARDS and these patients that were extremely sick and were our most complicated pulmonary critical care patients uh, across these different types of ICUs was the biggest challenge that I faced for sure. How we dealt with that, we, we developed vent teams where we sent our critical care docs um, from pulmonary critical care out to different ICUs, and they just did vent management with every one of those patients across our system. That was a huge challenge and not always well taken, um, unfortunately, by some of the patient people out there. So dealing with that and trying to improve care um, and trying to standardize, forget about improved care, uh, was my biggest challenge going through this uh, Eventually, we all got on the same page. It created a lot of camaraderie, um, and everybody was happy for help, but it took a little while to get there. And I, I can add, Mangala, that not only was it hard to do the, you know, put together protocols for everybody so that everyone was doing the same thing, but we didn't know anything about the disease in the beginning. So figuring out what those protocols should be right. was part of the the fear, you know, we weren't even sure what the best way to manage these patients was. Um, right. After a few weeks, we kind of all got on board and the New York City community, um, as I know you were a part of, was uh, actively connected amongst many of the hospitals to figure right. out what the best thing was. Uh, I can speak from a perspective of um, the systems approach that we had for neuroemergencies management and transfers. So in the pre-COVID era, we were transferring about 1,000 neuroemergency patients uh, annually. How do we continue to provide the highest quality of care for the COVID-19 positive patients and the non-COVID-19 uh, emergencies that we're going to continue to see within, within our health system and in the tri-state area? That was a big challenge. And then restructuring our team such that when the neurointensivists got pulled, so our ICU was the second uh, ICU. So at Mount Sinai Hospital, we had 11 ICUs at the height of COVID-19. And um, we, ours was the second ICU that became a full COVID-19 ICU. And then for the neurocritical care patients, we had an older space that we had moved from that became the non-COVID-19 non positive neurocritical care space. So our neurosurgeons and neurology residents and neurosurgery residents, the so people who were not intensivists were obviously taking care of those patients. And then uh, like Mangla and Doreen mentioned, folks from across the hospital, the collaboration was tremendous. We had cardiologists and vascular, uh, uh, interventional, uh, vascular surgery, interventional uh, radiology, pediatrics uh, staffing our, uh, our units and our neurosurgery attendings, other surgical attendings also started helping us with with uh, providing family updates or gathering data or just making rounds more efficient. So we were changing things every single day. It was important to acknowledge the fear of uncertainty, but keep, keep uh, rolling with the punches and being as flexible as possible and making sure that everybody felt okay, uh, taking on roles that, that they're not normally used to. There were more reports in media about people not coming into the hospitals out of sheer fear of um, not wanting to contract COVID-19. So we did take care of patients who would have otherwise had a really good neurological outcome with acute ischemic stroke, but they stayed at home for too long. 
and then ended up having uh, devastating outcomes. So that was hard. So I'll speak a little bit from, uh, not only from a frontline standpoint, but I think uh, as an overall, and some of you have hinted at it, first thing I think was important that we face as a challenge as a community uh, was information, and, or rather I should say misinformation, because I think the rapidity with which uh, the disease evolved and the rapidity with which uh, you know, we had the information come out, uh, at times it was hard to sort out what was uh, good, accurate information and what was misinformation. And especially when we're dealing with a disease that we have not had experience dealing with and we don't have good therapeutics for, how do we sort the information that we can utilize to provide the best care in these times? The second thing I would say is communication. I think communication, not even um, just at the level of the trenches, but at the level of administration, but at the level, uh, you know, city, state, uh, even as a global uh, community, um, because certainly there was a lot of, uh, you know, discussions happening across the pond or Atlantic or albeit with our colleagues in, uh, you know, China, there was a lot of information that was being uh, transitioned over and how much it is that is a biased opinion uh, of an observation and how much of it is uh, truly an applicable uh, thought process and a protocol that can help uh, save as many. And the third, I, I thought this was really important uh, at the level of, of you know, of, of individual was um, maintaining uh, humanism in this time. You know, uh, I always wear this pen that I got as a med student. I have it still. Uh, it's, it says humanism in medicine. And I think there were times where people were scared, uh, including healthcare providers, from um, you know, your nursing to your support staff to your administrator to your physicians, uh, and there was a lot of unknown. And just taking a moment to acknowledge each other and supporting each other and, and you know, just letting them know you're there. Um, also communication, I wanna go back and talking about how do we communicate effectively with patients' family members? How do we let them know that we are doing our best and we're providing the best care? I think those were three very, very important challenges. And I think a lot of us did our best to overcome them. And I'm happy to speak more on that if asked. Casey, if you don't mind, there's a question from the audience. I think this is probably as good a time as any to, to take. And that's how, how did you go about using these non-ICU trained clinicians in your ICU? How did you get them where they could do it and, and et cetera? Steve, maybe I can start. We actually uh, were very proactive initially, and we took uh, fellows from all different subspecialties and certainly attendings from many other subspecialties. We developed a rapid up-training course in our sim lab. They got materials they had to read before they came in the few days before. They did a four-hour intensive up-training critical care course and then uh, a big uh, about an hour's worth of PPE um, training. Uh, and everyone, many of them, we did over 150 of those, uh, did that before they were deployed to one of the ICU teams, which we think helped quite a bit. Um, and we used them, we paired them. Someone was asking our teams uh, at one of our main hospitals were 17, about 17 intubated patients was one ICU team with one expert uh, pulmonary critical care physician in most cases, although we did use anesthesia critical care and cardiac surgery um, and cardiology critical care. But that uh, and then below that would be a fellow 
or a, uh, an attending from a different specialty co with a co-attending uh, and then residents and, uh, you know, and APPs. But many of the people who worked with us were, were who didn't do critical care on a routine basis uh, became intensivists <laughs> in, in a very short period of time. And we did also use, um, as you had mentioned, volunteers from across the country from all different specialties, not only pulmonary critical care, but emergency medicine, thoracic surgery, um, you know, nephrologist, et cetera. So um, there was a, a lot of uh, teaming, teamwork together, get, you know, people, certain people were not uh, comfortable with certain things. Um, and we, as Mangala said, put together different teams, procedural teams, uh, we had a, a tracheostomy and bronchoscopy team. We ended up doing tracheostomies in many of our patients for management of many of the issues that a lot of places were dealing with, not only mucus plugging, but um, to decrease the amounts of paralytics and sedation that we needed to use, et cetera. So there was a team at each hospital for each of those specialties. We did something similar. We had a EICU training where we used critical care docs that were in the EICU to give lectures on vent management and get people sort of in a boot camp um, scenario. And we ran those pretty much every day until we got people up and running. We also uh, did something unique where we would open an ICU with our pulmonary critical care team, establish the ICU, and two days later turn it over to um, a team that was less capable of taking care of critically ill patients. So the patients were sort of settled in and, and had their lines and were in a routine a little bit and, and it was easier for them to manage rather than to open a new ICU. So we kept moving our teams um, as much as we could to open ICUs and then hand them over to other people. Um, that helped a lot, I think, and it helped reduce some of the fear of these crashing patients coming in just intubated and that uh, settled things down. We also tried to mix the teams up and put some critical care ACPs, if we could, on each team um, that did not have critical care experience. Uh, so all of those things were things that we did, and our ratio was about um, 13 or 14 patients to one attending, and then the rest of the team really depended on if they were fellows or residents or med students or um, if they were ACPs. No, thank you. I think I think that's awesome. Um, did you guys um, uh, did you guys um, have uh, other similar experiences? And I'll I'll, I'll throw this one to Nihana Harpreet in the in the upper corner. <laughs> sure. So um, in addition to all of the different uh, team models that both Mangla and Doreen described, so we had that, and we also adapted our existing teams, whether it was our tracheostomy team, rapid response team, nighttime intensive care service team, or uh, having a procedural team to assist when the number of patients was really going up. So there, were, there was a moment in time when, when we had our ICUs doubled up and we had two patients in the space that, that was meant to be one room for, uh, for a single patient. So that brought, brought on its own unique uh, challenges. For instance, for, uh, for the ICU that, uh, that I had staff, uh, the highest number of patients we took care of on one day was about 29 patients in a space that could have potentially accommodated uh, up to 36 patients we have 18 beds uh, but we we in essence use that tiered staffing model where it was one intensivist and then irrespective of what the subspecialty of that intensivist was as long as that, that was an intensivist everybody else was supplementing uh, that intensivist's uh, you know ability to provide the best care possible 
in, in really thinking through everything right from how we were running grounds to how we were gathering data because there was no family visitation. We, we were not uh, more for the safety of family members. We were writing down, so we have these glass doors on all of our uh, ICU doors. These rooms were quickly converted to negative pressure rooms, so all these doors were closed. So we were using those glass panels to write down all, all of our pieces of information, so including the bedside nurses who also came from different parts of the country. They were also, if you updated, if you got new gas, you put in, put in the values for those gas. So those little operational things that we would have otherwise not done, uh, that really made rounds much smoother. And having folks who have not been in a critical care environment uh, doing all of these different different kinds of courses. And I think a lot of different societies also provided great online material, including CHEST and SCCM and ATS. And there was a lot of great material. So we created online repositories. We did the simulations and these policies and procedures that uh, were developed. So we within the critical care organization that we have, the Institute of Critical Care Medicine, they were disseminated throughout the health system with input from all key stakeholders. So it sounds like those little tricks are, 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 you know, were really, really key and critical. I know you, you guys had mentioned earlier, um, you know, in these tough times, you know, humanism, just, you know, just not having patients and fam not having family members able to visit. How did you, how did you guys deal with, with not having family members visiting, especially in these critically ill patients, oftentimes them not making it? Um, what, what are some insights there? So I could comment on a program that NYU put together which uh, included um, um, what we called NYU Family Connect. And I'm sorry, as I'm moving here. I hope you can still see me. Um, so NYU Family Connect uh, was the backbone of that was our medical students who we uh, had actually graduated early. And they were responsible for relaying much of the information to the families um, and caregivers on a daily basis. And it was led by the head of our hospitalist team, uh, Kathy Hockman, and it was actually featured on uh, NBC News one night. So they really uh, were working for the hundreds of ICU patients that we had um, at our hospital. And uh, we got a lot of great feedback and we utilized the medical students in that way. And also uh, they were deployed to many of the research teams during that, during this time. That sounds like a really neat program. Uh, Mangla, did you have, did you guys um, have any, any tips or communication with the families? We called every family member, obviously, right after rounds of every family. And then we uh, had a FaceTime uh, program where the families could see their fam uh, loved ones on FaceTime. And our social workers led those programs where they would be in contact with families and put them together. A lot of our end of uh, life discussions were via Zoom. And we would bring the Zoom chat to the patient's bedside if, if the patient was awake and have that, if they could interact with the family. Uh, as much as possible. So that was, uh, it was an ongoing struggle. I think that was the hardest part of it, not being able to look at families and talk to them and tell them what was going on. To me, that was a, a very hard thing. But uh, FaceTime definitely was something that we used a lot. I have a, a question, Casey, from the, from the audience. They want to yeah. know, uh, while we were talking about uh, about non-intensivist physicians, they want to know, are you still doing that training on an ongoing basis? And do you still need uh, volunteers to come from outside? So 
the governor's order right now, um, I believe only allows volunteers to come into New York uh, City until June 4th. Yeah. Unless someone has a New York state license, then we can keep them on beyond that. Uh, we're, we're wondering, we, it may in fact get extended, but yes, we are still using volunteers at our main hospitals. We are too, and we, this is I think when we need them the most. Uh, our, our faculty are totally burnt out, uh, tired, and are emotionally drained, and uh, we would love to give them a little bit of time off a couple of days in a row. Um, it's been now two months of this nonstop, so the volunteers were immensely helpful, and uh, this is when we need them. Um, so if there, if there are any out there that could come, we would very much appreciate it. So that was life-saving for us as well. Something that we noticed uh, as, as we're trying to move towards this new state of normal and trying to restart some of those excellent services that we had for um, the pre-COVID era, how do we adapt them? A lot of our non-intensivists um, non or non-critical care providers, right from the APPs to physicians to nurses from med search flows who came to help, they're all going back to their pre-COVID roles. And even for them, it's a steeper learning curve because it's not the same form of care delivery. So how do we, how do we navigate some of that? And uh, Mangla brought up a very important point about this fatigue and this, this sense of burnout. And even if you're not physically fatigued, what happens to your emotional state of mind? And are you going to be fully present and bring your best self to work? It takes mm -hmm. a lot to process everything that's happened. And um, overall, I think we've been fortunate that um, within the health system, there was a lot of fluidity. We were all um, cross-credentialed. So there was help available within the health system too. And uh, for most of us uh, at, at Mount, I can speak specifically for Mount Sinai Hospital, we weren't doing more than three to four day shifts or night shifts in a row. And even if you felt physically ready to go in, I thought that that sort of break really helped uh, just recalibrate hope and recalibrate optimism to bring back to the team. So I agree with Neha and a lot of you have already mentioned this and I think using a tier system. Um, one of the things that we also did uh, was we had a, a critical care physician uh, essentially on console service for the floor. And the idea was that you would go and try to prevent a, a decompensation to lower that burden in the ICU at the same time provide support to our colleagues who are on the floors who may not necessarily be a hospitalist who may want that extra a person to bounce an idea off or talk about a patient that's deteriorating. Um, but I just want to take a moment, and I think we've all mentioned this, you know, uh, there are many unsung heroes, um, but specifically I want to just kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, the support provided by medical students, uh, you know, provided by our fellows, our residents. Uh, I mean, certainly I, I think I'm very inspired and proud of them. I think they've come through for us. Uh, and, and certainly they have kept us going along with all the other care providers. Uh, so that was very, very important. And, and I know we say that we did this. I, I think we're still doing it. Uh, you know, I, I'm on transplant service right now. Uh, next week, I'm going back on uh, COVID consult service. So it's not over yet. We're still seeing it. And, 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 and you know, the fatigue factor, uh, you know, just like Neha's uh, system, uh, we had a similar system. We, we recognized early on, how do you prevent fatigue? You've got to give enough time off. And in order to do that, you need to come up with a, a system where uh, patient, a person can have that time off. And we were also doing the three or 
four uh, days or, or, or three days or nights or whatever was needed. Now, certainly I can only speak about mostly my division, uh, but again, every division had, uh, you know, their plans in place. Uh, and, and certainly I think, uh, you know, help is always important and we want to thank all the volunteers and anyone that came to help. And I, I think uh, that also talks about the kind of community we are as healthcare providers. You know, I might step in and say, if you're interested in volunteering, um, you can go to the chestnut.org website. Mm -hmm. On the main page, there's an alternating, one says COVID-19, the other one says COVID-19 staffing. Click on the COVID-19 staffing, you can fill out a form. And what we have is a computer program that matches hospitals with doctors and, and respiratory therapists and nurses and anyone who's interested. Yeah, and um, I, uh, I provided the link on the on the Zoom chat, um, so so that's available. Um, and then we'll we'll be tweeting it out afterwards as well. So so definitely, I think that's that's definitely an important contribution. And it's nice to know from New York City providers that yes, um, help is still needed and and it can still be provided. So I think I think that's more than important. Um, and a pre, I think thank you. You know, you're right. These unsung heroes that that are out there um, that I think yeah, they deserve a lot um, a lot of thanks. Um, we actually we have another good question uh, from the audience as well that it's more operational and I think I've uh, definitely we've talked about this with my colleagues but what are two to three things um, that changes that have made during this epidemic this pandemic that you think you want to keep going forward in the future? I think uh, we had some lessons learned with supply chain issues. We weren't able to get a lot of the medications that we're used to using every day. And we had to be innovative with types of paralytics, with um, sedatives. So I think we learned a lot about getting out of our comfort zone in terms of medications and supplies and things like that. So some of those lessons learned are, would be um, just to keep options open and to be able to um, have uh, replacement drugs for drugs that you're used to using. And so we, we have started talking more about things that we normally don't do. Um, so that would be one small thing that the supply chain was a huge issue uh, in New York, at least uh, when this was all happening. I think telehealth got a real big boost that it had been waiting for. And both from a, so in my role for NEMAC, the Neuroemergencies Management Transfers Program, we were only doing absolutely emergent life rescues. And we, I wish we already had the program deployed pre-COVID where we could lay eyes on, on patients who we were not transferring over for safe watch. Uh, for our critical care resilience program, the PICS clinic, the post-intensive post care syndrome clinic we run, we had just about started that clinic right before COVID-19 and our telehealth platform had just been developed, but it had, hadn't been fully functional. So this, this just made us all realize how important this this resource uh, is for our patients and perhaps even in bridging some of these healthcare disparities in terms of people who do not have access to to medical care or folks who who we discharge to different kinds of facilities we're right now in our fix uh, clinic we're seeing patients who've gone to LTACs and SARS and acute rehabs which we previously did not have access to and the kinds of problems that we're, we're discovering making sure that our patients have the right resources to succeed in this, this new role, in this new ICU survivorship that they're going to experience and their families know that we haven't abandoned them after, after they leave our ICU. So I think telehealth has been a big winner 
and two, the accelerated um, sense of innovation. So how do you look at, look at a crisis and lead to uh, very rapid innovation? And one example of that kind of program is this precision recovery program for the Mount Sinai Health System, where um, it's a digital remote monitoring system. More than 1,000 patients have now been enrolled in that uh, in that program, patients who were not hospitalized, but then triaging them appropriately and letting them know, hey, you're getting into trouble and you might need to come in. So leveraging technology to provide compassionate care, whether it was where telehealth or where innovative programs, I think is something we should really hold on to. So I think uh, I agree with Neha and uh, she stole my punchline about telehealth, but uh, telehealth, not only in the COVID population, um, you know, my background being a transplant pulmonologist, so we have this cohort of patients, uh, you know, that we are responsible for. How do you take immunocompromised patients and provide optimum care and not, you know, expose them or potentially put them at risk for exposure? And for the longest time, utilize our telehealth system, having them use their home spirometers to let us know what their lung functions were like, and then also creating pathways if we absolutely needed to see a patient, how do we have a safe environment for them to come in and get checked or be seen? So, so certainly I think telehealth uh, and, and as Neha said, utilizing technology to innovate and then leveraging it to, in a manner to provide the best possible care as close to the standard of care as possible in a manner. And I think I'd like for us as a community moving forward, have these sort of plans already in the backup so that we don't have to rehash and we can only further innovate these things. And I'd, I'd say one of the things that we learned and we're going to keep uh, moving forward, hopefully, is just the multidisciplinary nature of many of the things that we did along the way. We thought we were multidisciplinary and that we collaborated, but now we really do collaborate. Just, I mean, to with ID, with hematology, with nephrology, with uh, our uh, thoracic surgery colleagues, um, not only for clinical care and developing protocols, but now as well for clinical research. Um, you know, I have a multidisciplinary team. Patients were being enrolled, you know, um, with uh, a focus on all the different protocols that were available because it was a very multidisciplinary team. And I think a lot of that collaboration, people now know each other. And I think a lot of that is going to continue for the future. Uh, and I think in the beginning, we were a little slow doing that. Pulmonary was doing the same thing that ID was doing, that cardiology, we were all doing them separately. And finally, I think we realized, uh, you know, uh, that we were better to do it collaboratively, and we got it done quicker and had more expertise. So I do think um, that's going to change the future at our institution and probably many institutions. I, I, definitely, I definitely agree with, <laughs> with, with you on that, and especially telehealth. I think this definitely has a new place now. Um, all of my clinic patients are loving calling in from home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a couple of questions here about intersection of staff members. And have we, have we learned how to keep our staff members from getting infected? Or people still occasionally get infected? Or how do you guys, um, what do you guys think about that? Uh, we had some early infections of our staff members, and mostly in the outpatient clinic, honestly. Uh, patients, people, when they first started showing up, um, did not realize that they were seeing patients who were 
positive and did not have N95s in our outpatient pulmonary offices initially. So I think the lesson learned there immediately was treat everybody as if they were COVID positive and everyone wears N95 all the time. As soon as we started masking everyone in the hospital and uh, the, the, both the patients and the providers, our infection rate dropped. And at the end of it all, our ICU docs really did not get infected at all. Um, our, our rate of transmission to healthcare workers, to physicians at least, or actually to was like 11% in the entire hospital system, which was less than our community that we were living in. So it was actually safer to be in the hospital in PPE than it was in the community. We were very conservative though. We, it took us a while before we were doing CPAP or high flow. We were very concerned about aerosolizing, uh, non-invasive ventilation. So it took us some time to uh, wait for the safety data to come out before we were willing to do that. So we were pretty conservative in the beginning with that. Um, but we did not see a huge transmission to respiratory therapy, to physicians, uh, to our nursing staff. So we were actually very, very happy about that. So um, I agree. I agree with Mangla. Um, I, I think uh, the one important thing I've learned out of this is we all had protocols. We all had plans, and then this thing hit, right? And you can raise your hand if you don't agree, but those plans sort of went out the window and we had to sort of reinvent and essentially it was absolutely like, absolutely every day it was a new protocol as the number of patients were going every out. day yes and after a while you had to actually email fatigue more than anything because you just were like okay what's the flavor of the day today uh in regards to infectability from my background you know our patients are already taught to be very very vigilant and be careful um, but we did certainly see some infections in our clinics uh uh, as well as in the hospital. But as with anything, I think our understanding evolved and we have become hypervigilant and extra careful because now we have experienced it at first hand what the devastation looks like. And I think in that, we created these teams, we have created these strategies to protect us and our patients or anybody else. Um, and, and the second thing, I, I think it's important, and this is something that I did on my first day in the ICU, uh, in the COVID ICU, um, I walked in and I remember one of the residents coming up to me and saying, you know, I just want to see one person get extubated. And this was like early on when we were getting hit and patients were just not doing well. Uh, and, and there was this sense I got of a morale that was low. And I'm sure all of us have experienced it. So, you know, it's just the nature of the critical care intensivist or pulmonary critical care physician. Uh, to rally the troops. So, you know, it just held an impromptu ask the charge nurse, hey, can we just meet for a minute? And just setting the tone of the day from that day in your unit to say, hey, what is our golden rule that we are all protecting each other? So if you're going to go into a room, just make sure you have somebody that looks at you to make sure you have everything on, right? And you are not going to get sick today. And just boosting that thought process. And then ensuring that people feel that you have their back. If there's a concern, you're going to come to this person. If I'm not here, my second is the person that's going to be in charge. That's who you go to. Creating a structure, impromptu, ensuring that people know who to go to. I think those were some of the reasons why we were able to sort of protect as many people as possible. Certainly, we did take big hits, and I think it's always uh, puts us down when we see one of our own in the ICU on a ventilator or being trached or not doing well. Uh, but, you know, ensuring that we are doing everything that we can to care for them uh, also continues to show those that are caring for these people that if I'm sick, I'm going to be cared for. 
I'm going to be appreciated. And I think that was very important in, in maintaining uh, perseverance through this whole thing. I think the, the most worrisome uh, aspect as in early March, mid-March, when we were beginning to see more and more cases and the burn rate of PPE was much faster than the replenishment, getting very clear messages from our leadership saying, you know, we got this, we're looking for PPE, uh, we're going to absolutely ensure your safety. I think that was not just reassuring, but also showing it by way of, uh, by way of delivering uh, PPE, which we had not all been trained on. This was different PPE. Every, every few days or so, you were seeing a different colored gown or a different type of mask or a face shield, which letting, letting all our teams know. And we knew this was coming because it was very clear messaging. That was one. We, we did see, uh, particularly like Mangla was saying early on, uh, particularly folks who were intubating, uh, uh, folks on rapid response team or the emergency medicine physicians who were intubating in non-negative pressure rooms because there's somebody crashing uh, on the floor or in the ED. But once our ICUs became all negative pressure rooms, uh, the number of people who actually became uh, infected was very, very low. Uh, currently, we're, we're providing um, testing for all healthcare workers, whether symptomatic, asymptomatic, doesn't matter. I just got my antibody test, I'm negative, maybe PPE mm -hmm. works well, and the donning doffing practices do work uh, as, as, as much as we pay, pay attention to them, they do work. Um, I think early on that testing uh, rationing, where we were trying to come up with there's a PUM and there's a PUI, patient under monitoring and a patient under uh, you know, under investigation and who really gets cohorted into those limited negative pressure rooms. So the, the number of infections early on may have been more than we would have anticipated in the healthcare community. But I think as the onslaught came, we, we really didn't see as many infections. Uh, Jorgen, did you guys, did you guys have a lot of cases or? We, I agree with everything that was said. We saw cases initially, but then very, uh, very minimally afterwards, we were very well supported with PPE. Um, and I do think it was probably safer being in the hospital at some points than even being like in your supermarket. So <laughs> I, I think that the staff, all staff, not just physicians, but nurses and, and housekeeping, et cetera, were very well protected. Yeah, which is good. I know um, that kind of leads into another question um, from the audience, and I think it's on a lot of our minds is, you know, this is a high stress environment. Um, everyone's worried, you know, the morale. Um, how, how has each of your institutions, either your division or your institution, kind of helped kind of, are there, are there any real time things that they have done to kind of help diffuse some of the stress or address it? Uh, it's very disconcerting during this time not to be able to see everybody together and I'm fellowship director not being able to see my fellows all together so I do think the way we comforted people was to um, visit each hospital make rounds with the team in our division both myself and our division chief so that we would they would see us regularly um, to have small group zoom sessions I'm sure all of you have done that um, uh, with different groups. We had a ladies night one night, a guys night the next night. We had a fellows night the, the third night so that we could, you know, have different groups get together. Um, and I think that's been the, the, the best way that people feel comfortable. And of course, our whole 
uh, wellness team through our GME office and through our psychiatric uh, division here has put together lots of resilience programs and reaching out constantly. My favorite thing is, you know, just setting up, we set up a WhatsApp, uh, little WhatsApp with just the fellows and then just texting them on a routine basis, one-on-one, checking in that everybody was okay. If I hadn't heard from them in like 48 hours, you know, doing a check-in because it was so fast paced in the beginning. Um, I, I keeping track of even where people were uh, was very difficult. The days were very long. And I think many of us don't even remember what happened in those first few days to the peak. I'd say the, the, the two, last week of March and the first week of April are, are a total blur, blur to me at this point. So I think, you know, it, it was hard. It was very hard to keep in touch with everyone. Wow. We, we did um, a couple of times a week a faculty, like a, a group meeting with our division um, and just let people vent. Uh, and I think there was a big struggle in the very beginning between uh, the autonomy of a physician to be able to order whatever medications they wanted and our study protocols that were coming out and our um, treatment protocols that were coming out. And, and there was a lot of discussion about that and we want to use this and this is working at one site. And so struggling with the um, morale of, of trying to get people to um, enroll patients in trial and not just throw medications at them. I mean, we had hundreds of patients at one time that we had no treatment for, really. And everyone wanted to do something different. And everyone was convinced that this drug was working better or that drug was working better or steroids. So trying to... Um, get people on the same page at the same time when no one really knew what the right answer was, was a, tr a tricky thing. And I think having sessions where people could talk that through and uh, vent to each other about that, um, it was definitely not easy. I think that was one of the hardest parts of this whole thing is that we did not have good treatment guidelines and we were learning together. And what would work in one ICU would be, hey, that this is working, we all wanna try it. and you know, but the, what about the side effects and just being able to talk through that uh, a little bit, um, it helps, but that was definitely a struggle in those early days that was very hard to deal with. Mangala, there's a question about how do you handle the mechanics of doing that? You've got a big health system, how do you try and get it so everybody stays that way? So we use Microsoft Teams. That was an essential thing to us. We had groups um, that were different. We had our own little pulmonary critical care group. We had an ICU providers group that included all the other people that were taking care of our patients. Um, and that really helped because you're able to get together and talk to the people you needed to talk to very quickly without looking for names and looking for this. Um, Teams was essential and really helped get us through this in a very um, organized uh, away, uh, but that was not easy, That those days of getting people on the same page. Um, and then you have to deal with the egos, like you have cardiothoracic surgery running a unit, hey, we know, you know. So just dealing with the egos of, of all of that was another layer of challenge on this. Um, and then it, having so many hospitals and so many ICUs, um, one hospital in ICU had a great week and extubated four people and were, were convinced that the drug they were using was the miracle drug that we were looking for. Um, and then that would really quickly rumble through rumors across and we would have to deal with that next battle. So it was really um, a struggle of what to do. Like, and, and to do nothing was not acceptable. We're ICU doctors who need answers and people were dying, 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds were dying in front of us and 
to not be able to do what you felt was the right thing to do um, as a doctor was a challenge, uh, definitely. So uh, this was a unique thing to this disease, uh, to a new pandemic. Um, and there was all this internet, social media, this is working and that's working. And, you know, that didn't help either because everybody was convinced that this was not ARDS. And this was, you know, there was all this stuff that was going around that we had to, to deal with as well. So um, Microsoft Teams, regular communication. We had a noon conference every day where people were allowed to voice their opinions and to talk things through a little bit. And then we had an external body to us that was sort of a guidelines committee that incorporated lots of people. So as those were, we, we were helping develop those and we were fighting those and we were doing both of those at the same time uh, as things were going on. Um, so, and then we were trying to enroll people in trials, but it, it was never fast enough. They were coming in faster than we could put them into any sort of trial. So that was another struggle as well. Yes, Steve, I want to echo, we had a leadership meeting from representation from each hospital every morning at 5.30, seven days a week. And then almost every day, there was a very large WebEx conference, which anybody from any specialty could join. And it either dealt on new protocols that were coming out or new research that was published or, um, you know, uh, specific findings that we were seeing at the beginning of noticing all of the thromboembolic disease, etc. And that happened. And there were many, many different specialties on those calls, but it was almost daily. Um, and, you know, we didn't, Saturdays and Sundays didn't count. Those seemed like regular days of the week. So, for a few weeks there, maybe about a month or so, that's how the days went. We pretty much used a tiered approach to communication as well as a tiered approach to wellness. At a unit level, at a, at a division level, at a department level, the Institute of Critical Care Medicines level, uh, ICU directors across the health system. Uh, so just like Doreen and Mangla mentioned, there were a lot of uh, Zoom calls or WebEx calls, whatever uh, platform was being used, we, we ended up using Zoom for most of our meetings and then at a at a health system level getting very clear communication from the chief medical officer from of the health system twice a day these are our numbers this is what's going on this is what we don't know this is what we're going to figure out i think reaching out to everyone letting them know that we got this and then periodically holding these big massive town halls i know for one of them there were more than 4000 people who logged in and when i saw that number i wondered how, how are we even going to make sense of the information or the questions that people are going to post? But it was done really well. So what I learned as a, as a leader who is somewhere at my, at my institutional level, I, I'm somewhere in the middle when it comes to the, the leadership position, but I didn't feel like I, I was not part of the command center. So how do you make somebody uh, at a different level who's not part of the command center feel like that. So I felt like effective communication and the t all those tiers of communication. So you don't need to let everybody know about all the uncertainties all at one go, because that could create unnecessary panic. You just keep figuring it out and you keep messaging and uh, using, uh, we didn't end up using Microsoft uh, Teams as much, uh, uh, but uh, within the Department of Neurosurgery, they use that for a lot of things. So we adapted whichever platform people were used to, whether it was Box or Dropbox or Google Drives, making sure that there was a cohesive platform available. So the intranet ended up being that platform and then making sure you can access it no matter where you are. Uh, that, was, that was important. And then from a wellness perspective, 
Um, like uh, Doreen mentioned, the GME already had the chief wellness officer. Every division, every department is supposed to have a wellness representative. So adapting those pre-existing wellness programs and then trying to meet the needs of the moment was very important. So because Zoom was the uh, all-pervasive platform that we were using for the ICCM, the Institute of Critical Care Medicine and the Department of Neurosurgery, we started uh, hosting these Zoom-based meditation sessions, uh, two sessions for the morning shift, two sessions for the evening shift, sending out uh, surveys, anonymous surveys, to measure people's level of anxiety as well and to see if this was making a difference. Uh, that was just one kind of intervention, but there were a lot of other interventions. And going back to innovation, there were these recharge rooms that our rehab center, our abilities research mm -hmm. center created outside of different ICUs. And these rooms could be converted into, they were supposed to be rooms to give you that moment, that headspace um, to, to absorb and make sense of what had happened, whether it was loss or grief or happiness that somebody got extubated, or the fact that you are uh, informing a family member that their loved one is dying via a Zoom call and helping them say goodbye. So there were a lot of those kinds of moments and it brought everybody on the team together to just take that moment. Uh, and the local restaurants and something that I should mention, the free food, the amount of food we received, it was, uh, it was incredible, the generosity. It really was. It was amazing. Yeah. Members, yeah. restaurants, everybody just delivering food and nutrition. I that was incredible. That fed our souls. Yeah, I agree. I, I think uh, you can never go wrong with feeding people in these <laughs> situations. And, uh, you know, even like our fellows, I think one of our fellows' dad brought food in. Uh, and it's just, just that support from the community. I think that was important. I, I will say one thing in, in our system, along with some of the things that have already been mentioned, uh, you know, our CEO used to walk through the units and, and just seeing the person that's in charge, it's up to you to take advantage of it. If you want to speak to him, he's open and, and to just discuss, hey, this is what I'm dealing with or having our behavioral uh, health or the nursing uh, director, you know, just that gives each sort of uh, specialist or, or each discipline the ability to reach out to their, uh, you know, senior person that's in charge. I think that was very important to be able to do that. And certainly reaching out to your fellows. We had a fellow that was, there was a concern was sick. You know, just making a phone call or texting that person. Just make sure, hey, how are you doing? I, I think we, we all sort of do that intuitively anyways, but I think at this level, it was much more transparent and it was happening. Uh, even if it was meant to be or not. And, and certainly those, I think, one of the centers where you sit down and just take a minute for yourself. Uh, I, I think that was important. Yeah, no, I think you guys have all found just a variety of different different ways to stay connected, even while we were having to stay apart. So, well, it looks like we're coming, coming up close to the hour. So I just want to give a chance for everyone to just give a final takeaway or something they just want to share with the audience with their, with their experience from, from, uh, from this pandemic. Harpreet, would you like to start? <laughs> Sure, I will. I will be the one that starts it. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, so, I, I think again, I want to just echo some things that we talked about. I was just taking some notes about things that I wanted to express, and, and some some of you have mentioned. Uh, well, first thing I think that I took from this is uh, information and misinformation. I, I think we should never, never again forget what we know, 
what has been proven, what is evidence-based, uh, a simple thing as proning a patient. Uh, you know, it's going to work much better than a miracle drug that we don't know yet. Uh, so just sticking to our training and, and ensuring that we are following that training, and I think we'll save a lot more people, uh, and wait for evidence to be vetted before you start instituting, because you could cause harm. Uh, an example of that is we've had a patient or two where um, they've developed uh, diverticulitis with abscesses from all the immune suppression that they've gotten. Uh, in efforts to try to improve their oxygenation. So certainly there are side effects and things and, and, and ensuring that you have good enough grasp before you apply these therapies. Uh, number two, I, I, I mentioned this, uh, humanism in medicine. Uh, I, I think it's so important, especially in times like this, where people are looking up to others to ensuring that we maintain our humanism, uh, be it the patient, be it our nurses, be it those that, that are house staff, uh, anybody, and taking a moment. And number three is, respecting each other and trying to understand each other's viewpoint, especially in a difficult situation, difficult times, and, and, and saying, hey, maybe I'm not getting the perspective. They are seeing something. Let me just take a moment and try to understand it. There were times where fellows wanted to start patients on heparin or something else. And I said, you know, I'm not going to say no, but let's look at the data together. Let's try to come up with a plan. Let's talk to the leadership and see if this is something we want to go down that way. So collaboration, and, and I learned a lot about what the other side does, my consultants do. And I, I hope they learn what I do. Uh, so I think, you know, that multidisciplinary is a different field now. No, I think that, I think that those, are, those are great takeaways. Um, we'll, we'll just go back in a circle of, um, based on my view. <laughs> yeah, what do you have, what, what are a quick takeaway? I think uh, one of the most important things that comes to mind is staying true to your core values, no matter what else is, what else is happening. Um, so staying positive, being really thankful, uh, lifelong learning, knowing that we don't know and we're going to keep looking. That was very important. And collab collaborating, collaborating across. I think one of the words that I must have used uh, the most uh, frequently throughout this was tiered. But thinking about collaboration at every level, at every tier and valuing each other. Uh, when we were thinking about this burnout pandemic pre-COVID, where we were talking, a lot of major medical societies were talking about burnout in medicine. What was driving burnout was this lack of not feeling valued at work, this lack of not feeling respected. So we have earned tremendous amount of respect for each other. And I hope we're going to hold on to that and continue these excellent collaborations that Doreen also alluded to. It's so, so important to value each other. So I think bringing that, bringing your best self to work every single day and staying positive no matter what, um, that, that was important. I can go next and let Doreen close out. Um, I think that uh, having a sense of family amongst your colleagues is so important that you depend on each other and that you're there for each other. Um, I think appreciating your family that I ignored for six weeks or eight weeks when I wasn't home and wasn't around. And when I was home, I was on the phone constantly. Um, so they stood by me and were always there for me and, you know, complained a little, but not too much. Um, and were understanding of what, what, we were, what we were going through. So I appreciate being able to come home to that. And I think uh, the... Every time I heard from someone from Chess that I knew from another hospital saying, hey, how are things are going, reminded me that there was a bigger community out there and, and you get lost in this world at work. 
um, and you get lost in this pandemic of just this day-to-day craziness and just being pulled out of that for a moment from someone else to say, hey, how are you? What's going on? You know, there'll be better times ahead. Can't wait to see you in October. Uh, little things like that really made you feel like, okay, this will be over. This will get, we'll get through this and move on. And it's nice to be reminded of that uh, every once in a while, getting those communications of, of the societies putting out guidelines um, constantly also helped validate some of the things that we were dealing with. So having that outside source from our own societies really did help. And I'm very appreciative of that as well. So it was a learning experience. You're never going to be uh, prepared enough for this and don't think that you will be that you just are you learn on the job with this as we got hit so hard with such a hurricane that you can never be prepared it was just really counting on your coworkers and counting on on the system to help and pull pull you through so that's what we did we reached in our souls and just uh, went with it and did the best that we could Absolutely. so i guess I, i'll go last on the last minute here i mean i I can't agree more with everything that's been said. And I do think, you know, there are lots of silver linings in every, uh, everything we go through. And I, I think this uh, pandemic highlights how committed our healthcare community is and uh, what wonderful people they are. And not only the physicians and, um, and fellows and house staff, but anyone who works in a healthcare facility um, and how truly dedicated they are and a major part of the team. And to have that support, as Mangala said, from our families and from the community around us in every aspect, um, it, you know, it just makes you really appreciate, uh, you know, your life and every day that you live and being part of not only the United States, but the, the world that we live in. No, and that, that is so powerful. Um, so, well, ending, I think, on, on those notes, uh, I want to thank everyone, all four of you guys, for an amazing conversation. Um, I think there was a lot of, lot of good information um, that came out, and we're just able to share you, our sto- you know, the stories from New York City area. So thank you. You know, I know wellness is such a big deal. I know, I know Chest, is, uh, Chest is doing something um, important with that, right, Steve? Well, we are, we're hoping to. Um, it's been uh, it's been a wonderful thing listening to the four of you guys talk about uh, maintaining humanity, maintaining your your equanimity, so to speak, during this this horrible thing. Um, it's obvious that that this this isn't over. This is a marathon, uh, not a sprint. Even though everyone's been sprinting full out already. Um, but chest, chest leadership notice, noticed and listened to you guys. Actually, all the way along, we've heard you guys talk about, about ability to, to maintain humanity and, and deal with the stressors and things. And so chest is, is putting together a program. And you guys all know because you're uh, avid chest members that this is the kind of, um, this kind of organization that chest is. Even though the rest of us haven't been in in the sort of crushing experience that you guys have been in, this is stressful for everyone everywhere. We know that for all of our members, you know, across the country, across the globe, it's it's hard to work sometimes because of the COVID. What we have to do, it's hard to play. How do you get your recreation? It's even hard to go to the grocery store for heaven's sakes. And we know 
Um, all of these things are affecting all of us. So CHEST is, is beginning uh, programs to help with our, our human wellness, so to speak. And you'll hear more about that later, but, but we're going to start with monthly webinars uh, to help us to sharpen our skills at maintaining resilience and, and maintaining our humanity and our, our um, um, empathy for one another. So just keep your eyes open for that. You'll be seeing that. Uh, Alex Nevin is uh, heading up our uh, sort of efforts along this way, and you'll see more as we go. That's all I have to say. Back to you, Casey. Great. And we'll definitely be on the lookout for that. So thank you. Once again, I want to thank all the panelists for, um, for all of your time and your dedication. And I want to thank all the participants as well for their wonderful questions. I apologize we couldn't get to all of them, but, uh, but that was definitely, it's definitely has been a, a great webinar. So until the next one, I want to think we're going to be signing off and, uh, and everyone stay safe and take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you to Neha. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.